Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Ano Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. Hi everybody. Now, Naomi, for over a month, headlines all over Europe have been dominated by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And as your correspondent for the Irish Times, you have been right in the thick of the political reaction to this current crisis in the European Union. Within weeks, the political landscape of Europe has been completely transformed and that of Ireland along with it. So today I'm going to pick your brain about Ireland's role as an EU member state in this moment of instability and about how its position fits into the international reaction to the war. Right. Ireland's position is really a fascinating one and it's quite unique. Uh, It ranges from its early move to welcome refugees and support of Ukraine's membership to the EU to then, of course, its finely balanced position regarding military support due to Ireland's traditional policy of neutrality. Mm, Neutrality, right. So regular listeners will know, of course, that this is something that we dedicated a whole two-part episode to earlier on in this season, as it happens. Yeah, and now this policy has been really highlighted or kind of brought into sharp relief by events in Ukraine, uh, which we'll discuss as well as delving into a remark about Ireland by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky this week that sparked something of a furore of interpretation about whether this was like a diss to Ireland's support of the country as it fights off the Russian invasion. Now, our last episode was also on this topic. And since then, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has had a profound effect on the life of our most recent guest uh, on that show, Nadia Dobryanska. Nadia is a human rights worker from Kyiv and also became a fluent Irish speaker after studying in Queen's University in Belfast. But only a few days after we spoke to Nadia, she and her family had to flee the city of Kyiv and were thankfully able to make their way to safety in County Cork. Later on, she'll be speaking to us from Cork, where she and her family have been welcomed as refugees. She explains how they made it to the Polish border amidst air raids and bomb alerts and how she eventually found her way to safety. Many people initially had this idea that we will be safe in Western Ukraine. Nowhere safe, even, you know, Ternopil, Lviv, wherever, where Russia is just can kill everybody from the sky. Naomi, we've got loads to cover in this episode. But first, you can tell that it's been a crazy few weeks because we actually forgot to take our annual break this year. Yeah, we actually clean forgot, listeners. Uh, We got (laughs) so caught up in everything that's been happening in the world that we accidentally gave you an like extended long season of the podcast and just like didn't end it um so we are making this episode basically our season finale yes right indeed yeah um because we're tired guys we're tired believe it or not even podcasters need a little breather once in a while Uh, but we will be back in a few weeks time refreshed and renewed with a whole new range of topics for season six and of course we'll still be updating our patreon content during that time So if you want to hear more from us during the break, you can head over to www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. Okay, so shall we get on with the episode? Yes, right. So perhaps, um, you know, so much has happened uh, Mm. since we last spoke about this. It's probably a good idea to run down where we are exactly in this invasion. What is the state of play for Ukraine and Russia? And 
Is it possible at all to make any predictions about where this is going right now? Right. Um, okay, so since we last spoke, Russia in- launched a full invasion of Ukraine. It has caused widespread destruction in the country, particularly in its east, where it's bombarded mm. cities with bombs, missiles and artillery. As a result, a shocking figure, 3.5 million people have been forced to flee the country as refugees, while another Mm. 2 million people are internally displaced, uh, according to figures from the UN Refugee Agency. Now, while many in the West expected Ukraine's government to quite quickly lose control of the country in this scenario because of the much greater size of Russia's military, instead what's happened is that Ukrainian forces have been really much more effective in their resistance than the West, and no doubt Russia as well, expected. At this point, there are different estimates about how many people have died. And the exact figure is not known. I mean, Mm. people literally haven't been buried, so we don't have the count. But it's believed that thousands of Ukrainian citizens and soldiers have been killed, and losses on the Russian side are also really significant. We had estimates from NATO officials this week that put the number of Russian soldiers killed as somewhere between 7,000 and 15,000. Now, Moscow, of course, would dispute these figures and say that it's lower. But if it's close to correct, and the Ukrainians think that it is, that would be a devastating toll for Russia. Like just just for context, mm. in a decade of war in Afghanistan, Russia lost fifteen thousand troops, and you know we're wow. just weeks in to this invasion at this point. So to cut a long story short, Russia has faced a much more fierce fierce fight than it expected and prepared for. Um, and just before we we're recording now, its military announced a shift to a new phase. And it's going to focus now, it says, on trying to control parts of eastern Ukraine, which would suggest moderated, less ambitious potential objectives than what it wanted before, Mm. which, you know, seemed to be aimed to topple the Ukrainian government and take over the whole country. Um, So far in the parts of Ukraine that are under Russian, Russian control, uh, we're seeing reports of the kind of repression that Nadia actually predicted in our last episode, um, key leaders, journalists and civil society figures, people like activists, um, also particularly members of the Tatar minority, are being detained, uh, disappearing, people being deported to Russia in unclear circumstances, uh, really very worrying signals of general oppression. Uh, Where Mm. things go from here, we don't know. Um, There have been real concerns about whether Vladimir Putin could lash out or escalate Um, by using more terrible weapons in Ukraine. So that's one worry. Um, In general, what you hear said is that this is now looking like it's going to be a prolonged war and various Western countries are kind of adjusting to that by trying to send Ukraine's army the extra weapons and so on that it will need to keep fighting in this scenario. Right, so this brings us to the response of the international community. Um, What... How would you describe what that has been and how Ireland stands in relation to other EU members in particular regarding uh, this invasion? Right. So there's an alliance of what we often refer to as the West, but includes Japan Mm. and countries like Australia. Uh, It's basically led by the United States, Europe, Canada, the United Kingdom, so on. And they've collectively responded 
to the invasion by punishing Russia economically and seeking to isolate it. Other Mm. major powers are a bit more ambiguous, particularly China, India to a certain extent, South America. Um, But the Western response has involved really wide-ranging sanctions that have deeply hit Russia's currency and economy and ability to buy goods, particularly like important technological components. And this is going to cause really profound problems for the country in the medium to long term. Mm. There also have been cultural moves like excluding Russia from sport and various organizations and sanctions that freeze the assets and impose travel bans on figures blamed for having key roles in the invasion, like people who financially supported it or organized propaganda to support it or were directly involved militarily and so on. So in in essence, the Western countries are trying to stop Russia's ability to wage the war while shying away from steps that they fear could escalate the situation because they don't Mm. want to be drawn into becoming active combatants in the conflict. Essentially because if the NATO alliance was fighting Russia, that would unambiguously be World War III and it would be a conflict between nuclear powers, which is just, you know, really widely feared and which the West wants to avoid. So after an initial response, which was really pretty powerful and quite dramatic with steps that haven't been taken before, like preventing Russia's central bank from using its foreign reserves and various agreements to send Ukraine military aid. At this point now, we are bumping up against the limits of what Western countries are willing to agree to do for Ukraine. And so we're starting to see nuances starting to emerge between con- some countries that want to go further and others that have like limitations of various kinds. Right. Okay. So we're, we're getting to see how far countries will go to avoid mm-hmm. a nuclear war, uh, essentially, which, you know, yeah. Um, where does Ireland fit in in all this? So in some aspects, Ireland has stood out among EU members. Um, so Ireland was quite early on, it announced that it was waiving visas for Ukrainians, which would make it easier for refugees to find safety in the country. So far, about mm. 12,000 Ukrainian refugees have uh, arrived and the government expects that number may still rise by a lot. Um, but in context, it's still far, far smaller than numbers in Poland, which has welcomed more than 2 million refugees, according to the UN. Um, as a whole, the EU has since agreed an unprecedented step to grant a special status to Ukrainians, which gives them residence and free movement rights, and also the right to access stuff like education, housing, healthcare, and so on, for a period of one year that can be extended to three years. Um, Ireland was an early backer of that, and this week was also the first Western European country to join Um, mostly Eastern European countries, in calling for Ukraine to be declared an EU membership candidate, uh, which would be Mm. like an important statement of political solidarity, kind of affirming a future for the country as an EU member state, rather than the bleaker alternative of being under Russian occupation. Mm, At this point now, a big division has appeared among EU member member states over the issue of energy, So some countries like Germany, the Netherlands, Italy, Hungary and others are really deeply dependent on Russian gas in particular. It's like pumped Mm. to them through really huge gas pipelines and it heats houses and it keeps factories running. And at the moment, there isn't an easy alternative to it. 
and stopping supplies would cause really significant economic damage. Um, so some countries led by Poland and the Baltic states are calling nevertheless for energy imports from Russia to be stopped because they point out that, you know, buying this gas is directly financing the war, like paying for the invasion. Um, but countries like Germany and Hungary have said taking that step of stopping the gas imports would just impose too great a price on, on their citizens. So they've refused to do that. And that's where we are. The EU is stuck on that. Then there's the issue of military aid. And on that, Ireland takes a different position to most member states. Okay, right. And I suppose that's not surprising, uh, given Ireland's military neutrality, which, as uh, we mentioned, uh, we did an episode on earlier this year. And just to maybe recap some of the things we kind of saw in that episode, uh, we saw that Ireland's military neutrality is you know, very dear um, to a lot of people in Ireland. It's, it's quite a, an entrenched uh, cultural uh, thing, um, which is tied up with Ireland's history and especially its, its post-colonial history uh, mm-hmm. with the UK. Um, and also that is quite an unusual uh, version of neutrality in that Ireland's military is extremely underfunded compared to similar countries around it in Europe, uh, mm-hmm. which isn't really the case with other neutral countries, uh, especially in Europe. We compared it to Switzerland, which of course is, you know, armed to the teeth, <laughs> you know, but that uh, Ireland is actually really missing quite a lot of very, you know, basic uh, military equipment and reserves. Now, questions have been popping up uh, in Ireland in the context of this war in Europe about this version of neutrality. So this debate is kind of coming back on the table. Could you fill us in a little bit on that? Yeah, um, what I'd add to what you've just said, Tim, in your sketch is that something important to know about neutrality is that it's really unclearly defined (laughs) Irish neutrality. Mm, There's lots of different Mm. interpretations about what it means and it's not actually written down in a clear way anywhere. So it's kind of complicated. Um, Mm. But I mean, in terms of how it has produced a policy result, most concretely, Ireland was among three member states not to join in with a joint EU fund to buy weapons for Ukraine to help its army defend against the invasion. The other uh, EU states there were Malta and Austria. And they Mm. all opted out of that due to various uh, positions of military neutrality. Uh, And the fund was actually designed in such a way that they could do that. Uh, So it allowed neutral member states to do that, while the rest of the EU who did want to provide that kind of support could go ahead all the same and did do so. And um, Ireland opted instead to send things like medical supplies. Okay, right. But but other member states with traditional neutrality policies did join in in this, like um, Finland and Sweden. Am I right in that? Yeah, so things have become quite interesting on that front. Finland and Sweden joined, and in general, the invasion of Ukraine has sparked a political debate in both of those countries about whether they Mm. should join NATO. Um, They've Mm. actually began at this point to take part in all the NATO summits, uh, Finland and Sweden, which is a really close alignment nudging towards membership, and polls have shown a rise in support for membership in both countries. The main reason is that Russia's step in invading a neighbour country which, of course, it did, you know, with the annexation of Crimea in 2014, but it's now kind of doubled down on it in a really dramatic way. Um, This has really alarmed other countries that are on its border, which were occupied by Moscow in the past, like Finland. 
like mm. Russian state TV openly talks about potentially attacking other bordering countries like Poland, you know, trying to create a land path to its port that it has on the Baltic Sea, Kaliningrad, and, you know, other threats like that to the Baltic states of Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. By the way, like, it's really important to know that they're just really tiny compared to Russia. Like, Estonia is 1.3 million people, for example. Like, it's way smaller than Ukraine's 44 million. So it's like a different story in terms of its vulnerability to Russia's army. Um, mm. All of these countries as well have incredibly painful memories of repression under the Soviet Union, which explains why they are at the forefront of calling for, you know, no holds barred action against Russia to stop this invasion of Ukraine going any further. Um, mm. They're all members, NATO member states, uh, Poland and the Baltics, and they all see that as really fundamental to their security, that backup of NATO's collective defense agreement called Article 5, which states that if any one member is attacked, all of the members will come to its defense. So while you have these sort of new debates in, in Finland and Sweden. In Ireland, it's kind of a different story. Um, events have caused a reckoning uh, with, I think, how underfunded our defence forces are. And it's it has highlighted our military neutrality. But there isn't the same debate about NATO membership at all. Right. That's so interesting because, you know, uh, something I remember from our episode, our two-parter on neutrality, was how, you know, neutral countries traditionally aren't members of NATO simply because it isn't compatible uh, to be to be neutral and also to be a member of a military alliance like that. Joining NATO means not being neutral anymore, basically. So being right, neutral okay. means not being in a military alliance like that. So were Finland and Sweden to join NATO, they definitely wouldn't be neutral. It's either or. Um, in terms of views in Ireland... Um, polling and various referendums have repeatedly shown that there's really, really strong support in Ireland for neutrality. And, you know, even though we, as we've discussed before, it's not clearly spelled out what that neutrality actually means. There was a poll on NATO membership, actually, in Ireland prior, just prior to the invasion of Ukraine by Ireland Thinks and the Sunday Independent. And it found that in response to the question, should Ireland join NATO? 54% said no, 34% said yes, and 12% said unsure. I have to say, to me, like that 34% yes is actually more than I was expecting. Um, joining NATO, basically, in my view, isn't a position that has many political champions. Um, my sense is that there just is a much more energetic political impetus on the other side against joining NATO. And I don't get the sense that there's much political momentum to change that. Like, I do think that the invasion has forced a reckoning with some realities about defense and punctured some complacency that, you know, the, the kind of ideas that, like, we can just assume no one poses a threat to us. I would expect that it would be more likely now that it's easier for the Irish government to increase defense capacities. But that has nothing to do with neutrality. You can have lots of defense capacities and that can actually make you stronger in your ability to remain neutral, like we've discussed before. Um, so it's a totally separate story to NATO membership. And basically my own analysis is this. On NATO membership, Ireland is different on this. 
because of our historical context and our geographical position. Like our former colonizer is a major NATO member and being in that same alliance would make it more difficult for us once again to have a distinct foreign policy autonomous of Britain. Mm. So like that whole heritage and suspicion of international military alliances, which includes NATO, but also covers EU military cooperation to a certain extent as well. Like that remains a political fact in Ireland. I do think that the invasion of Ukraine made people who favor more defense cooperation with the EU more vocal about it. Um, I think in their view, like it's very commonly said that Ireland is in reality freeloading off the security provided by others and that it's in some way shameful not to stand alongside our allies and contribute in some way, including potentially to Ukraine. Like, for example, I thought it was really interesting to note that after Ireland, like, declined to join the joint EU military fund, there was quite a public debate about it. And there were calls for Ireland to do more, actually, like uh, potentially to send anti-tank weapons that Ireland has, somewhat surprisingly. Apparently, we have quite a story of them due to UN missions. Um, And these anti-tank weapons apparently expire, like they go off if they aren't used. Um, And in the context of like this big surge of public sympathy with Ukraine, there were calls for those weapons to be sent to Ukraine. But basically, look, I mean, in the circumstances rapid reaction was required, the Irish government did not have time to basically sort out this very contentious domestic debate at home to make any kind of significant policy shift regarding international military cooperation. Like, and I think you, you just can't argue that it would have the public mandate to do that at this point. Okay, so could you tell me a little bit more about that EU military strategy about defence? How does that work exactly? This is the one that we were talking about in our last episode. At that point, it was under negotiation. It's known as the strategic compass. And I was kind of saying at the time that like, uh, like this is a debate that's coming in the EU and it's going to be a big theme and Ireland needs to sort out kind of what it thinks about it because we're, th- mm. we're going to get overtaken by events. Um, which kind of happened in a way, but just not in a way that I kind of knew would happen. So yeah, this strategic compass uh, strategy, it was approved actually uh, just in like yesterday by EU leaders. Hmm. Um, And it kind of sets out ways that the EU can like coordinate more on defense. So like make sure like equipment is interoperable and things like that. And also it sets Hmm. out ambitions for uh, a rapid response force of 5,000 troops although they've also agreed such similar things in the past that have just never actually happened so we'll we'll see if that actually happens so yeah the the strategic compass it was adjusted to talk a lot more about Russia given recent events uh, before it was approved but like the main story is that it was agreed by the 27 EU member states with basically no difficulty because of the circumstances. Like the invasion highlighted the reality of security threats. And also it, it created this context of this big political need for unity among the member states. Mm. I happened to catch uh, Taoiseach Michal Martin as he left the EU summit where it was approved shortly after US President Joe Biden had left as a guest. And I took the opportunity to ask him to just lay out what does this strategic compass mean for Ireland? 
could you just explain to the Irish people what does this mean for Ireland, this new uh, signing off on this new uh, EU defence cooperation? And also, given our struggles to actually meet commitments already to in, in other areas uh, of military and including in the UN and peacekeeping and so on, like how realistic is it for Ireland to commit to an extra thing like the Rapid Reaction Force? Well, again, I, I mean, I think it's an evolution of a consistent pathway that we've been on. We've been participants in EU uh, security and defence discussions and frameworks for quite a long time now. We didn't take the Denmark options years ago when Denmark opted out opted out of even participating in discussions. We have participated. And it's increasingly clear to us, if you look at the recent uh, Commission on the Defence Forces report, they talk about the need for us to raise our game, to raise our standards in respect of equipment, uh, maritime capacity, uh, air capacity and so on. And also that when we joined Partnership for Peace uh, and when we joined PESCO, all of that was around having sufficient interoperability with other defence forces across Europe, both in terms of procurement of defence um, equipment and, and so on. And that makes sense. When we're engaged in peacekeeping commissions, very often we're engaged with other European defence forces, likewise in terms of peace enforcement missions. Uh, we've been involved in battle groups that have never actually been used, but we're involved in training exercises with other countries as well. So this is a natural evolution, I, w I would say, in the first instance. Secondly, also in terms of hybrid um, threats and in terms of cyber security, uh, I think we do need to work very closely with our colleagues. Uh, in Europe and indeed in the United States and I would have discussed this with President Biden last week also uh, that cybersecurity is, is a new threat to a country's security um, and we do need really to cooperate with others because we will not be able to deal with those hybrid threats and cybersecurity threats on our own um, and likewise I think in terms of standards and interoperability it makes sense that we would do that uh, the more fundamental question is one for I think later reflection Okay, now recently there was another very dramatic development at that uh, same EU summit, which involved Ireland in a way as well. Uh, the Ukrainian president Vladimir Zelensky addressed EU leaders in the summit over video link, and he made this remarkable speech where he directly addressed the response of individual nations one by one and appraised the support that each had given to Ukraine. Luxembourg, we understand one another. Кіпр. Дуже вірю, що з нами Італія. Дякую за підтримку. Іспанія. Знайдемо спільну мову. Бельгія. Знайдемо аргументи. Австрія. Разом з українцями. Для вас so for you know lots of EU countries he was really quite complimentary for their stand with Ukraine. But then he came to Ireland and he said, I quote, well almost. Я впевнений в цьому. Ірландія, ну практично. What's that about? Tell us tell us more about that. Yeah, this, these remarks caused like a furor in Ireland because I think there were a lot of hurt feelings. Like people didn't want this to be true um, because the mm. overwhelming public reaction has been feelings of solidarity with Ukraine. So, the, you know, a remark like that felt a bit jarring. There was a lot of debate about what it meant. Bet, there was, yeah. you know, was this lost in translation? Was it like, you know, some sort of issue like that? But basically, like, look, I have the official English language translation here provided by President Zelensky's office. And like, here's what he says, right? He's talking about the backstory of how EU countries 
in, in recent years have been slow to help Ukraine and recognize the threat from Russia and allowed themselves to become dependent on Russian gas, right? And then he asks mm. them not to be late again when it comes to the question of Ukraine's ambitions to join the EU, okay? And then after that, he starts listing EU countries by name. He goes through all, all of them. And for each one, he gives like a few words um, which refer to their level of support. So he starts with the most supportive ones. He says, mm. Lithuania stands for us. Latvia stands for us. Estonia stands for us. Poland stands for us. Okay. And then as he goes through the countries, some start to get a bit more faint praise. So he says, Germany, a little later. And he says, Portugal, well, almost. And as mm. he's listing the countries, like the last two that he names are Ireland and Hungary. And from, for Ireland, he says, well, almost again. And then he like openly tears into Hungary and tells its prime minister, Viktor Orban, to pick which side he's on. Uh, because just as context, Orban has historically been an ally of Putin. And mm. this state media in Hungary is still like pumping out Kremlin talking points about the war. And Hungary has also opposed various measures like cutting gas imports and allowing weapons even to cross its territory. Right. Okay. So that, you know, that well almost comment it actually has a kind of double edge because of the its place in the hierarchy of where he positioned it in relation to other countries uh, so even though it's the same thing he said about portugal i mean ireland is put right down there uh, beside hungary here uh, which gets the most uh, vicious treatment uh, in this yeah i mean my reading of it is it's it particularly since he started with the most supportive ones is that you know that supports a reading of this that it's a diss to, you know, mm. Ireland's support. Uh, but, you know, anyway, in Ireland, it, like, it caused a furore. Um, I think what we can say clearly is that Ireland has been singled out among the countries that receive faint praise, okay? Mm. To me, definitely comes across as a diss. Um, there are ways, different ways of interpreting it. Like, for example, is he only talking about support for U Ukraine's EU membership? Or is he talking about policy towards Ukraine more broadly. But it doesn't make sense for him to diss Ireland's support of, of Ukraine's membership ab ambitions because Ireland's actually distinguished itself in its support for that. So, mm. I don't know, that's kind of confusing. And then there's yeah. this question like, is it a more carefully thought out remark or is it something just like throwaway that he didn't even intend and we're all just getting in a fuss <laughs> about something that's nothing. But look, if you sure. look back at Zelensky's history of publicly naming and shaming countries, just like he does in this speech with Hungary, and which he's done repeatedly with different countries and different leaders over time. Like, it would be pretty strange to think he's not intending something here, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And also, like, okay, my reading of it basically is if you look at where Ireland stands out, there's, there's one issue really, and it's the military aid issue. Um, like military aid is the primary demand of Ukraine's government. Like their their main ask of the West is to close our skies, so to to impose a no fly zone and to give them more weapons. Like they he asked NATO to send them tanks and planes and all this kind of thing. And it's also like a very popular demand among the Ukrainian people. It's not just the government, but it's actually what protesters mm. like chant for on the streets and what they were chanting for actually outside the building at the at that EU summit in, in a big crowd out on the street. Um, because that military aid is what they credit with helping them fight off the invasion. 
Like it's really significant to them. So my analysis of Zelensky's remarks, like based on my knowledge of the context, is that it's a diss and it's most likely related to Ireland's position on military aid, um, given the context. But the Irish government says, please don't read too much into this. So Right, yeah. And I suppose, uh, you know, on his list of priorities... Ireland is hardly going to be, you know, playing on his mind. It is this tiny little country exactly. uh, in the grand scheme of things here. We're not a major player here. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, and like he's, you know, the context was like he's literally video calling into this conference, like from a war zone under threat of aerial bombardment. So it's like, you know, maybe we shouldn't be too sort of judgy about the remarks in, in any case. Um, also, like quite quickly after this became a big story in Ireland, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, made quite a pointed tweet uh, in which he praised Ireland for joining a group of countries committed to pursuing prosecution of war crimes uh, in the invasion. And he wrote like a, I, what I think is a very carefully worded sentence, which is, Undoubtedly, Ireland is at the forefront within the EU and beyond, providing essential support for Ukraine in all possible ways. I think in all possible ways is like in all ways mm. that are possible for Ireland, right? Um, and I think, look, at the end of the day, that statement shows the alliance between Ukraine and Ireland is very much a real thing, and it's important for both sides. Okay, right. Now, I mean, Ireland has come in for some criticism from a very different place and for very, very different reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, the United Kingdom has kind of gotten a bit of a bad rap for imposing visa restrictions on refugees who are trying to flee uh, to safety. And, you know, it was quite something actually uh, in the UK media in the last few weeks where the UK media, uh, when they were trying to interview refugees, ended up having to interview refugees in Ireland uh, <laughs> because there were so few refugees getting into the United Kingdom um, at the same time. Uh, even there was one kind of um, lightly criticised moment on Sky News where um, two refugees in Ireland were interviewed by Sky News and then... Uh, the the interviewer told them that the British people were behind them, which, you know, rang very hollow in, in the context of mm -hmm. what was going on at that point. Now, things have kind of um, geared up, I think, in the UK since then. But there has been this volley of criticism from the Tory government in the United Kingdom towards the Irish government because of how many refugees the Irish government has been welcoming in. Mm -hmm. uh, because the Tory government fear, apparently, that Ukrainian refugees might be able to enter the UK uh, by crossing the border with Northern Ireland and then mm -hmm. on to Great Britain. And amazingly, in fact, this week, the UK government approved a rule which will now require that non-Irish or non-British residents um, in Ireland are going to have to apply for an electronic travel authorization before they'll be legally allowed to cross the border from the Republic of Ireland um, into uh, Northern Ireland, into UK jurisdiction. And that obviously brings up this whole host of incredibly complicated issues, um, not least in the context of this enormous refugee crisis. Do you know if this is directly related to the Ukraine crisis or has it perhaps been brewing for longer than that? Is this something that maybe is being done um, as an excuse um, or using the Ukraine crisis as an excuse to do something that maybe the UK government has wanted for a while? I mean, yeah, maybe. Like, it's a really tricky one to parse. Mm. I definitely think it's part of long-standing UK policy of like a toughened immigration policy that, you know, really defines this government and how it got to power and the whole Brexit referendum and everything. Um, I don't really get like why they are making a stand on this particular issue. 
and, and like making a big thing about being cautious towards Ukrainian refugees, like I think it makes them look really bad to be like briefing mm. against Ireland for welcoming Ukrainian refugees, like given where public opinion is on this, which is like that we should yeah. support and welcome them. Like, I don't think it's a good look. Um, the prospect then of these checks, like if you have to technically do this electronic submission online, like first of all, it's it's bureaucracy for people. And like second of all, it raises the prospect of how it will be enforced and a potential increase in like spot checks on people, which which do sometimes happen at the moment, actually. Like you do sometimes, even though it's supposed to be like passport free travel, sometimes you nevertheless get checks on like buses crossing the border and stuff. And the reality of it is, is the way that they work is that people are racially profiled, essentially. Uh, That's how Mm. like this informal checking like happens in reality and it's a big problem for many people there are lots of people who might not be british or irish but who live on one side of the border and work on the other for example and might need to commute like this it's a Mm. big agricultural area there's lots of farm workers like it's it's really it's a it has big implications for people's lives and it's really difficult for ireland Ireland's foreign minister, Simon Coveney, said that, like, we asked Britain not to do this, but they've done it. And, you know, this is not welcome. This is in the context of the whole protocol and protocol on Northern Ireland, you know, the post-Brexit arrangements. Like, mm-hmm. all of all of those issues continue to be basically an unresolved problem um, that has just for now receded from the forefront because everybody is just keen to stress general european unity at this moment rather than division right indeed yes um and of course this uh comes up uh, in the context of nadia who we'll hear from uh, in a little bit uh because of course nadia uh, originally lived in northern ireland and at the moment uh is uh is being hosted uh in county cork in the republic and can't actually cross that border uh, technically at the moment now I bring that up because something that Nadia also brought up in her extended interview, uh, which, by the way, we will be publishing over on Patreon, was the ongoing housing crisis in Ireland. And this is something that absolutely came into my head from moment one as well, Mm. uh, because undoubtedly this is going to be a major issue. You know, there are thousands of refugees um, who are flooding into Ireland by the week, basically, at the moment. And at the moment, they're being hosted by people who are welcoming them into their houses. But that's obviously just a temporary situation. And this war could go on indefinitely. You know, who knows how long this is going to take. So where are these people going to live? Is this something that has been discussed at all at government level? You know, because it seems like this huge oncoming problem. Yeah, like this is something I've kind of pressed Irish officials about. Uh, Like just the logistical question of how Ireland is going to welcome and support these people in the ways that they will need Mm. it's going to be something that's really difficult like the shortage of housing in ireland is acute and i have real questions about the logistical preparedness of the state uh, to what it's committed to here like particularly because at this point we don't know as you point out how many people will be in need of assistance i think basically the government was just keen to rapidly show solidarity in any way it was able to within the constraints of what it could do, given Ireland's like particular position um, in terms of like international alliances, which is, is non-alignment. So, you know, they've made a political statement about welcoming refugees and about supporting Ukrainian EU membership ambitions, because those are like available policy choices, right, that are sort of ready and there and that they can do quickly. But like now the logistical challenge is a really big question. 
it's definitely something that I think the Irish state may struggle with. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they better get themselves into gear pretty quickly, really. Yeah. And I suppose if this is what it takes uh, to get the government to actually address the housing crisis, you know, will so be it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, let's hear now, uh, actually, from Nadia Dobryanska. Nadia Dobryanska is pretty well known at this stage in Irish language media uh, as a Ukraine commentator. And over the last while, she has been making regular appearances over video link from Ukraine. But since she arrived back in Ireland, she finally got the chance to speak in person to the Irish language television station, TG Cahar. So let's first hear a clip of that moment. Well, yeah, I'm glad Nadia actually. I'm not much as a dear person. I guess her nice to hear in. I guess how she lends the studio in it. Devas Nadia, I guess kept me the fault to roll to Connemara. Great, Millie Mahaga. Nadia, Connors of Rantohain, I guess the winter, I guess she've her nice on Sunaydin, Shivanaydin in it. Nadia spoke to us from County Cork, where she and her family are staying temporarily with a host family. And I asked her first about when it was exactly that she knew that she had to leave Kiev. Thursday early morning, I'd had insomnia for the that for previous weeks because of all the threats of Russian invasion. About two, half two, I woke up on Thursday and stayed up late scrolling Twitter. And around 5 a.m., I read the news that Putin declared the war, that Ukraine has, he said that Ukraine has to be denazified or whatever he said. In disbelief, I started calling my family, my parents, my brother, and a few other friends from work who I knew were stuck in Lviv. And after that, I heard the explosions in my vicinity i've been on the go ever since that was thursday you you heard explosions that day already yeah yeah on that morning straight away after the declaration of war within minutes from that well maybe it's been you know it's the further i go from this moment maybe my memory is not that accurate but it was definitely within 10 to 20 minutes because i was packing already I made a contingency plan with my brother. For me, missile missile attacks on Kiev would were the red line where we, we shouldn't stay. When these are tanks, you sort of know what's the, the range of our their action and how where it's safe, where it's not, or whether if there are Russians in with the guns in the city, you know which parts of the city are safe. But if there's are long-range missiles, they can destroy you, they can kill you and and wherever you are in Ukraine. And that's what's going on right now. On one hand, I feel that not many, many people didn't make these decisions. And I'm feeling extremely guilty that, well, I took my parents out of danger straight away. I had to argue with my parents. They didn't want to go. They were in disbelief. But we kind of managed to convince them with my brother and we left. We spent the first night in the outskirts of Kiev. It's a village called Krukivshina which is in, in the, to the south from Kiev, but it was off the main road, so we could get there quite quickly, even though the city was congested and it got crew even worse in the days to come So because we had a car and we could leave early on. We didn't get held up in traffic because people spent days in traffic, you know. The first night I spent waiting for the bombing of Kiev, which was predicted, and I stayed up too late chatting to my friends from in Ireland. We heard some explosions and it turned out to be one of the, well, Ukrainian uh, anti-missile defense destroyed Russian airplane. And I think that's what we heard. 
So in the morning, we left to the countryside, to my mother's home turf in Jatomarsk Oblast. The first few days, we we could hear the airplanes in this like fighter jets. And on Saturday, we had to shelter in the basement of the house because as we've been told later, two fighter jets from Russia were fighting one fighter jet in Ukraine, from Ukraine. So it was quite dreadful, and I spent this. We spent a week there. It was a bit of a family reunion. It was my mom, my mother's sister, her, and my uncle, and my three cousins. And my elder cousin brought his wife and baby from Kiev, and we were all sheltering together. And then after a week, the news started to come in that Russians have been shelling civilians or exterminating them, basically in northeast. And a, sc- a school was destroyed in Zhitomir city, which is further to the north from us. And I've been hearing some rumors about Russians exterminating, like rand- randomly executing uh, civilians in the, in the countryside in the northeast, which it doesn't get in the news. But well, I'm hearing more of that right now from Kiev Oblast and others. So I had this bad feeling that we don't, we shouldn't be waiting until Russians come into our village, just killing everybody just for the crack, just because they can, or to intimidate people. We've been he- hearing to, through territorial defense about Russian tanks firing at houses in the countryside and Kiev region, just to intimidate people so that they don't report their movements or executing uh, family members of the territorial defense. You know, these stories, it's it's a war, so the stories circulate and there is no opportunity to verify them. But they, I wouldn't think that they would be too far from reality. The worst thing that I was afraid of was from bombers and ballistic missiles just destroying residential houses. On Saturday, we left at 7 a.m. And we drove as far as, as Chernobyl, which is one of the Western, big Western cities. So eventually we, we stayed, spent the night in a shelter in the village near Chernobyl, in a school that was uh, refurnished as a shelter for displaced persons from across Ukraine who are trying to make it to, well, to the Western Ukraine or across the border. So we spent a night there and there was... <laughs> air raid alert at some point and we had to shelter in the basement and I just could see that my parents were just useless sheltering they would I had to scream at them like they could we can be bombed like for Christ's sake and it's you know many people initially had this idea that we will be safe in western Ukraine and as we know from recent news that when the military base, training base near Lviv in, was targeted by Russian long-range ballistic missiles a, dozen, a few dozen kilometers from the Polish border. So nowhere safe. And it was just a reminder for me that even, you know, Ternopil, Lviv, wherever, where Russia is just can kill everybody from the sky. So eventually we crossed the border and we were on the other side of the Polish border. And yeah, it was fine. It was very nice because my mom lost her passport for international travel. And also the baby was just three months old and uh, we didn't have any travel documents for him. But the Poles were so fantastic. They gave us free insurance and they accepted all travel documents whatsoever we had, whatever we had. I was chatting to someone in Ireland and I was told, well, why don't you just go? I chatted to my parents about that, about leaving for Ireland, and they agreed. I don't know why. 
could be that we I suggested that we take my cousin and the baby as well. The her three month boy. Yeah, I said to this this friend that we can do it if he could help. Our friends in Ireland arranged uh, tickets for us. Ireland waived visas for Ukrainians. That's what I was thinking, that Jesus, I could be going there and this could be a safe place for me. Because unlike, well, Poland is now crowded with Ukrainians. There, are, I think there's just a million of Ukrainians just in Poland alone. So going, one of it was one of my arguments to my parents that we can't stay in Poland, that we would we have to go further. And going further for me, going to Ireland was the easiest choice because I have lots of friends here and I have the language and I know the context. And going to other countries would be just going into yeah, into the unknown. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, we took a flight on to, to Dublin and we were processed very quickly on the border and I was helping out to as an interpreter for a family whose uh, wee fellow of nine years uh, was was sick and the, the Irish doctors had to help him and they they couldn't communicate. So I was interpreting while in the queue and they made the border guards made sure that my parents were processed and my passport were processed in the middle of that. And yeah, we saw a 17 year old fellow from Ukraine who traveled on his own and he was chatting to everybody and I couldn't I just I was I was devastated to see that well you know it's hard for me in my 34 when I'm 34 and it is all very hard for me and my family and my elderly parents but he's a 17 year old and he had to go on his own it's desperate so we had a separate queue in the, at the airport at the passport checks Ireland thankfully accepted us with uh, all sorts of travel documents there was one one officer dealing with you know in the box dealing with our papers, and there were other others helping out, uh, referring people who who had no accommodation whatsoever, no nothing planned, so that there would be a hotel for them where they could further go. We had some sort of plan, and lots of others people had just came you know bare feet that well here here we are. So yeah, and we were taken to the one stop shop near the airport. We got free SIM cards, and it was all brilliant. We had there was free food for for us in the meantime, and personnel in in the one stop shop were just there was a man checking on me how I was doing with the forms for BPS. I was like, I almost thought that we knew me calling my name and asking if there was anything I needed. It was like what's wrong with you people? You know, it's just too good to be true. And then friends of friends took us from Dublin to Cork to the host family. And we've been here for a few days and it's unbelievable. Finally, I'm here settling in. I mean, there are so many unknowns for us at the moment. I mean, even in Ireland, how long all this welcome is going to last, you know, like it's, it's, it's amazing how, how well, how warmly we've been welcomed, but God knows how long this war is going to last and what's going to happen to us. When you touched down in the airport, I mean, I suppose this must've been quite a moment because, you know, you used to live here and uh, coming back here in such different circumstances, what, what was going through your mind as, as you went through those doors uh, in the airport? I felt relief. Well, first of all, well, when we were on boarding the, the plane, the weather was horrendous. <laughs> and I thought that, well, welcome back home. I missed <laughs> missed the miserable weather. No, I was thinking that, well, for, first of all, I was living in Northern Ireland and it was quite different from where we are now, of course. 
But yeah, I've, I'm I'm thinking about this that I'm really regretting the fact that you know I I'm back, but in very different circumstances, and I don't have the hard space to enjoy it as much. I have this sense of relief that it's best place for us to stay here because of my connections and the support that we're getting. It would have been much worse if we went to to know to other countries nearby Ukraine. Not not because they're the about the condition, but I just wouldn't have the language or wouldn't have enough enough understanding of how we could navigate. So in this way, yeah, I'm really happy. I was looking for hula hoops, but they're not available in little. They were not on offer little near near us. But I'm not giving up. There could be other shops. Oh, <laughs> there definitely are. You'll find hula hoops. You'll find <laughs> That's a guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> So I'll ask you just um, the final question. Is there anything you'd like people to understand, maybe that people don't ask you about or that, that you find that people don't get about what has happened uh, in the last few weeks? What, what would you like to say to people if, if you had a chance? Mm. There's one thing that has been, I've been thinking of that when you're Ukrainian, th- this war is just Im- an embodiment of long-term relationship with Russia. We've faced three famines, devastating Stalin's purges and all of that. So, you know, this war is about U- survival of Ukraine as a nation, survival of Ukrainians as a nation. And I see that in the West, people are thinking that, well, there are certain degrees that we can make concessions to Russians so they that they b- back off. You know, partition, maybe agreeing to give on Ukraine's neutrality or non-alignment or prohibiting Ukraine from joining the EU in the long term. Like these are questions for Ukrainians are not on the table. It's not about uh, what compromise we want, we are ready to make with Russians. From our perspective, Russia just wants us to be destroyed as a nation. When they want us assimilated, becoming part of their Russian or Eurasian Union or whatever, how they seem their statehood in the long term. You, I think we were already forgetting that in the first days, Russians' plans were about, were to incorporate Ukraine or partition Ukraine between Russia and maybe God knows which Western country like who would accept uh, the second half of Ukraine. So in the, at this point, asking Ukrainians what compromises we want to make with Russians to make this war stop, it's just pointless. We want our country back. We want Crimea back. We want Donbass back. We want the whole country back and we want reparations, a huge amount of reparations from Russia. So I probably, I don't get asked these, these kind of questions, but this is, I think it's an, an important point to understand from Ukrainian context that this is not about stopping war at by by any means. It's about getting our country back. Like I mentioned earlier, if you want to hear our extended interview with Nadia, we will be publishing it very soon over on Patreon. So you can head over to www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport to hear the whole thing. It is a really shocking and heartrending account, especially in the knowledge that this is just one family story among millions who have been now forced to flee their homes due to an invasion that has changed their lives forever. We extend our 
deepest wishes for health and for fortitude to Nadia and her family and to all of Ireland's new members of society who we really hope can find a place where they can thrive despite the appalling circumstances that they find themselves in. And with that, that's all for this episode of the Irish Passport Podcast and that's all for season five. After we take a break to recuperate and research the next season, we'll be back with fresh episodes telling the story of Ireland, its current affairs, and the history you need to make sense of it all. Slán for now. Slán, everyone.